I wonder uh, what you thought when you heard we were doing that. Um, you may have gone and never heard of that book. Uh, you may have gone, it sounds a little bit like a disease I don't really want to get. Um, maybe you went, that is the book which I got to in my Bible reading plan and I gave up on. Uh, I think that's quite a common thread, having read a few things around Leviticus. Leviticus has a bit of a reputation. So um, it'd be right to ask, and we'll, we'll look at this first before we read a few uh, verses and bits from our early chapters of Leviticus. What is the point of it? Why are we studying it? It's a book which is over 90% lists of laws and commands. Um, so it's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. Uh, but why are we looking at it? Well, two things to say first. Well, firstly, uh, we'd want to say as town church, we, we believe and the Bible makes this clear that all of the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, as Paul says. So we believe that all of God's word is useful, uh, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament. It's been a wonderful series in Philippians, hasn't it? It's great to hear Gledson M's reflections there. Um, but we believe all of scripture is useful. So I hope as we go along, we may put some of our misconceptions we might have. You may have none, but misconceptions to bed. I hope we may come to delight in it. Uh, the psalmist uh, writes about the law. He says, oh, how I love your law. It's more precious to me than silver or gold. When the psalmist was writing about that, he'd be especially talking about the first five books of the Bible. Leviticus in particular, right at the heart of his first five books. Leviticus would have been the first book Jewish children read, studied and memorized. It was key for them. And so there are real riches in it for us today, even though we do need to be clear right at the start, it's not written to us today. It is still written for us. It's not written to us today, but it is written for us. God's word is written for us. And, and as we'll see in the book, we'll spend a lot of time as well. We'll look forward as we see that Jesus came and fulfilled all of the law. He is what all of the law was pointing towards where it find its completion, its purpose. And yet he himself didn't say that the Old Testament is laws are irrelevant and useless. All of the Bible written for us, even though the laws and regulations we'll see were written to God's people then, not directly to us now. Secondly, uh, we need this book to help us better understand why Jesus died. Few books will better help us understand this. Uh, let me ask you, as you listen in now, Think about this. How would you describe what color is to someone who has been born blind? How would you describe a rainbow to somebody who's been born blind? It's hard to know even where to begin, isn't it? And the death of Jesus makes no sense at all without the, the building blocks and the language and the ideas which help us make sense of it. And Leviticus especially will help give us a really good framework to make sense and understand some of the depth of the death of the Lord Jesus and his life on earth. Let's get a couple on screen. I saw this meme randomly posted last night by a friend on Facebook. And you see what it says there. Well, why would you even read the Old Testament? So much of it is just fill in the blank, whatever you want to say. And they go, shh, if we don't listen to the overture, we won't recognize the musical themes when they come back later. So Leviticus is useful for us now and useful for us as we apply uh, the Lord Jesus' death for us as well. If you were here last year, you may remember our series. We did one book, one story. We saw the whole Bible was one big story. And Leviticus is key to helping us understand the big picture of the whole Bible story. And my prayer will give us a real richer understanding of what Jesus achieved as he came. Now, Leviticus may be 90% law, but it's also a wonderful story. There is some narrative within it, but it sits in the middle 
of, as I said, these first five books on the Bible. And it's a good story and it has drama and has tension like any good story does. And the tension is in our series title in some ways, Living with a Holy God. I can make it a question, how can a holy God live amongst his people, an unholy people? How can a holy God live amongst an unholy people? And if we stop now, it's a, it's a fundamental question when we stop and think about it, isn't it? If you listening today, you trust in Jesus today, if you have a relationship with him, if you call him God and father, how, <laughs> how is that possible? It's mind blown when we think about it. The God of everything, the holy God, pure and perfect. How can we be in relationship with him? It's a marvel and we'll delight in it and worship him in it together. Have you ever known a, a couple maybe who you just can't fathom how they actually work together, but they do? Maybe a massive extrovert, full on introvert as well. Just how on earth does that work? Well, the book of Leviticus helps us consider how on earth a holy God can live amongst an unholy people. As I said, it's part of the big Bible story. So just to help ground it for us, we just need to reflect a bit on what that big Bible story is. Maybe it's the first time you're, you're thinking about the fact that the Bible is one big story. Firstly, right at the beginning, we see that God uh, created the world uh, and mankind in it to be in relationship with him. Then man uh, rebels against God's loving rule. He was expelled from the Garden of Eden. And after many years of wandering in the desert with Abraham, God promises to bless his people. They were taken uh, into slavery in Egypt uh, and then uh, there was Passover. They were released back into the desert as God's people uh, started to go towards the promised land. Then having left Egypt, Moses comes to Mount Sinai, up the mountain where God gave him the law. And this is where Leviticus finds itself after this. Moses went up the mountain. You may remember in the one book, one story, Lanks helped us understand. Uh, as he went up the mountain with the people, they kept their distance from God. It was a windy, fiery, scary mountain as God revealed his law to Moses over 40 days. And as part of these, uh, this law, this uh, understanding of how God would live amongst his people, Moses received plans for a tent uh, called the tabernacle. Uh, tabernacle just means a dwelling place. It's also called the tent of meeting, as we'll see. And this is where God would dwell and live amongst his people. They'd carry this tent around, they'd set it up as they went from place to place until the idea was permanently in the temple. Uh, they would be able to dwell with God together. Something which hadn't happened since Adam and Eve walked amongst God in the Garden of Eden. Israel, God's people, were to be God's special possession. They're to be treasured, called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were called to spread God's justice, his mercy, his goodness and his love to demonstrate to the nations around them that God lived amongst them and that he was a God who was to be followed. And this was amazing. And when we stop to think about it again, it's, it's easy to think this is just fairy tale. This is history. This is true. God was living directly in their midst. That was the plan. God was going to live directly in their midst. But whilst Moses was at the mountain, the people got bored. The people got rebellious. We'll look at that a bit next week. And as mankind has done throughout history, they went away from God's commandments about how to live and how to worship him. And they thought it'd be a good idea to build an idol that might be easier to worship than, than Yahweh, the, the, the God who they couldn't see necessarily. And so they built a golden calf, a golden calf they thought was worth worshiping instead. And Aaron, Moses's brother, who we'll meet properly next week, was keenly involved in this idol creation. 
but there's always wonderful buts in the Bible, aren't there? The big picture story is God continued and continues to do throughout the Bible. He shows his people mercy and grace. And then if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Leviticus. I said the third book in. But if you just flicked back one page, literally one page, right at the end of Exodus, we see this now. Moses had come down from a mountain. They built the tabernacle according to all the instructions in Exodus, loads of instructions, which I'd encourage you to read if you want to find out a bit more. And it says this here in Exodus 40, verse 34. It says, then uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They'd built a, a dwelling place, a meeting place, and yet Moses could not meet with God. He'd met with him on the mountain, yet he cannot meet with him here. This is the tension. This is the drama which is Leviticus is revealed in. Moses, who had been leading God's people, who had spent 40 days up Mount Sinai meeting God, cannot enter the tabernacle. And the question comes, if he can't, then what chance does anyone else have? How on earth can God's people live with God? God had come to dwell, but he was a holy God. His, his glory, it says here, his glory means his weightiness had filled the tabernacle. God was amongst his sinful people. So how on earth is this going to work? This is the question Leviticus was given to answer. And we see in Leviticus 1 verse 1, and we'll have it read for us in a minute, that the Lord calls to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Not within the tent of meeting. We see in Deuteronomy, the book after Leviticus, God speaks in the tent of meeting to Moses. Leviticus bridges that gap of how do we go from Moses not being able to be in God's presence, God's people not being able to be amongst him, to God being able to be amongst his people once again. Why at this stage could Moses not do this? Well, it's not surprising when we think about it. Think about the golden calf right from the start of this relationship of God and his people, they'd shown their true colors. They'd ignored all that God had done and said and began worshiping him in their own way. A holy God and an unholy people, a very odd couple. How on earth will it work when the holy God of absolute purity, absolute goodness, absolute holiness comes to live and meet with his, holy and, his unholy and rebellious people? As I said, that's a question we should all stop to think about if we do stop and think. How on earth? We all like to tell ourselves we're all really quite good, don't we? Maybe apart from a few outliers, you can name them. Some of those famous dictators of history, maybe. Your neighbours who never put the bins out, park in the wrong space. It's a few outliers, but generally we think we're all quite good. And we think maybe God's job, if he does exist, is to affirm us to overlook our mistakes to genuinely make us feel better about ourselves but that, that's not honest is it to, to be honest a god who is worth worshiping is going to find so much in my heart that he he can't that he he mustn't but he shouldn't affirm but if he were to affirm he would diminish himself there is so much in me not worthy of affirmation not worthy of of, of love of being in god's presence is messed up broken sinful rebellious so if God is awesome and pure and perfect, then how can he be in a relationship with me and with you? That is the question which any honest reflection on true faith brings us to. How can a God of perfect holiness live with messed up people like us? It's a wonderful answer we're going to see in Leviticus. Wonderful answers we see fulfilled in Jesus. And Leviticus here points us to the Bible's great answer.
a final bit of introduction before we get to three short readings and then a brief look at them together as we introduce our series. I was aware we needed to introduce the context a bit more in our first look in the book of Leviticus. I find it helpful um, to maybe see the book of Leviticus as a journey. Um, any structure of a, of a book of the Bible is often a little bit of a best guess, uh, but this seems to be helpful. Uh, and it's helpful to view it a bit like a sandwich. Uh, you'll see it come up on screen here. Uh, we see the opening chapters um, look about the tabernacle. We're going to look at those today, particularly focused on sacrifice today. Tabernacle. Then we see priests, packaged with priests, uh, laws around purity, and then the Day of Atonement right in the middle, which you'll remember we looked at in that series a while ago. We'll look at it again. So it's clear as we look at the structure of Leviticus that the answer to how God can live with the holy people is to do with a tabernacle, this, this tent of meeting. It's to do with its sacrifices, its festivals. It's clear that there is the work of the priests in some way, which we'll look at next week as mediators. That's important. And we can see that this then results in a responsibility for Israel, a responsibility for God's people to reflect God's purity in their lives. And a pivotal point right in the middle is the Day of Atonement, central to all the first five books of the law. The first part of Leviticus is all about approaching this God. And the second part is about how we then live with him. So that's that's sort of a brief overview of Leviticus. Hopefully by the end of our, our six weeks in it, we'll have a really good understanding of, of why it was given to us, of, of how it works and how it wonderfully points uh, towards the Lord Jesus and, and enriches us as we worship the Lord in all we do. It's not just for education, it's not just for knowledge we look at Leviticus. It's to cause us to deepen in our love, our understanding, our worship of the Lord Jesus. So uh, we're going to read now. Um, I think Jenny's going to read for us. Uh, because this first answer to how we are to approach and live amongst the holy God is through sacrifices. Chapters one to seven are all about sacrifices. Uh, there's five key sacrifices. We're going to look at the first three of them. Uh, so Jenny's going to read. She'll, she'll make it clear. It says on the PowerPoint as well which verses we're reading because um, we're not going to read the whole three chapters in one chunk. Uh, so I'd encourage you to get your Bibles open. And thanks, Jenny. Yes, so we are reading the beginning of chapter one, two and three. So we'll start with chapter one and reading verses one to nine. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The son of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And then we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. 
they are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil, together with all the incense, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, and an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. And then we're going to be reading from chapter 3, 1 to 5. If your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Right, thanks so much, Jenny. So we've got three offerings here. And as we looked at the first answer to how we are to approach and live amongst the holy God is through sacrifices. And we see here, you'll see it on screen there, the first offering is the burnt offering, which as I've said there, there's three Ds. The first offering, the burnt offering bridges the distance. Now, when we look at sacrifices, I'm not sure what your brain first goes to when you think of a sacrifice. Pagan sacrifice historically were all about buying their gods off or appeasing them. These ones are all about dealing with our sin, our guilt, our, our messed upness, our relationship with God. An offering uh, just means to draw near. Uh, and as we've looked, like, looked at, this system was designed by God so Israel would and could draw near to him. This system was set up so Israel would and could draw near to God. Again, let's let's pause in some ways and, and marvel at that and worship God for that. Let's not take that for granted. God longed to draw near to his people. He's always longed to draw near to his people. And at the heart of this first sacrifice is something called atonement. See in verse four, it says here, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. It's the most basic and essential sacrifice that would have taken place in the tabernacle. Um, you can see it illustrated the tabernacle in our series graphics. Have a look at them later. Atonement is what went on here. And it was a term actually invented by English Bible translator. It literally means what it says, at one meant, at one with God. This offering had the purpose of making the people at one with God, of restoring that relationship, of bridging that distance. God wanted to draw near to them, and yet for that to happen, there needed to be reconciliation. There needed to be a payment made. The word translated from the Hebrew, which we get atonement from, was taken from the words for ransom from death and purification from pollution. It was a, that kind of word that we needed to be ransomed uh, and we needed to be purified. And then we could be at one with God. And this offering was to just do that. God had, had just done this physically for his people. He'd ransomed them out of Egypt. He'd brought them out of Egypt and into their own new land. Uh, and now we see this action again through sacrifice. I wonder, as you look through some of the details, maybe some of the things you noticed. 
First thing to notice is it was very, very costly. Did you notice that the sacrifice required was a male without defect, a male bull without defect? You weren't to bring the, the runt of your herd, but the prize award winning specimen, and you were to kill it. Um, quick game, 30 second game. If you've got your chat open, I want you to just type in a figure for me if you're on Zoom with us today. Stick in the chat, how much do you think it costs today to buy a decent bull? 400 pounds from Simon, incorrect. Oh, there's some big figures going in here now. Let me get it up. 20,000 Rosie, 10,000 Helen, 5,000 Tom, 6,000 Katrin. Oh, there's some big figures in here. 10,000 from the Cockrums, that is huge. 26,000 from the Joshes, potentially. That is absolutely massive. Um, now, an actual prize winning bull was sold in Ireland last year for 147,000 pounds. That's an outlier. That's, that's odd, it was newsworthy. Um, I went on uh, thefarmingforum.co.uk, uh, wonderful website, bit bizarre. Uh, from a quick look at it, I found that the going rate for a good bull, a solid bull, the sort of bull which would be expected here is about three or 4,000 pounds. Not cheap, really not cheap. Um, and you took that bull and you killed that bull. It spoke volumes about your devotion to God and the devotion God calls from his people. The payment which needs to be made, it's costly. But again, we constantly see God's mercy, his kindness. We read later in Leviticus, his more laws, which show how there were different options of animals to be sacrificed depending on your wealth. Could be a, could be a dove, could be a sheep. But if you could afford it, it was a prize bull, it was costly. It's the first thing we learn. The sacrifice was costly. Secondly, we see uh, as we look at what the sacrifice entailed, you had to lean on it. And this wasn't just a, a tap or a, a press. It was a proper leaning on it, a deliberate act of identification is what this symbolizes. This animal represented you. As you leant on it, you were saying, this was to be my substitute before the holy God. And then you slit its throat. And then you burnt it and its meat was burnt up in smoke. And you would have noticed again and again, if you read through Leviticus, you'll see this again and again. And I encourage you to, it said, this was an aroma pleasing to the Lord. This isn't like a church service you could possibly doze off in. I'm aware that it's theoretically 20 to 10 now, uh, if the clocks have gone back. You couldn't fall asleep in this one. Note the physicalness of what was going on here. It was physical, it was deliberate, and it was costly. So what are some of the things we learn as we look at this sacrifice straight away? We, we see straight away that you can't just saunter into God's presence. You can't just casually walk in. Blood needed to be shed. It wasn't casual. Then as the, the throat was slit, imagine a throat being slit as you slit your own prized animal. There was no way you couldn't remember that as you slit its throat, you were saying, this is the penalty I deserve. The penalty for my sin and my rebellion is death. You couldn't have missed the significance of it. Our sin requires a lot of payment. But then again, you sit back and you marvel because this offering, these instructions told you that God would accept a substitute on your behalf. Later in chapter 17, we see uh, why blood being shed was accepted for atonement. Blood uh, equal life. 
it says here in, in chapter 17, for the life of the creature is in the blood and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that make atonement, makes atonement for one's life. God gave us a substitute. And finally, as we uh, see, it says again, this was pleasing to God. In some way, I'm, we don't understand it, it was pleasing to God as the smoke ascended symbolically up to heaven. Now, I'm aware this, this is foreign, this sounds hard to get with thousands of years and many cultures removed. And for the Israelites as well, this would have been hard to get and understand, probably. And yet it wouldn't have stopped them doing it, would it? God said to do it. And he said that this would reconcile them with him. So they did it. Of course they did it. We see many years down the line, they stopped doing it and it caused major problems. Now, Earlier, if you may remember, I said that whilst this book isn't written to us today, it is written for us. And I'm sure some of you, as we've gone through this, you will have been going, yeah, OK, yeah, I, I get some of the, the links now to the New Testament. I get kind of how this fits in, how we understand more about Jesus and his own sacrifice. I get that the lamb who was slain. We see Paul talks about this. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says this, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering that pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews, probably the, the key book to understand, we'll spend quite a lot of time in Hebrews in these next six weeks. What Jesus achieved on the cross tells us this. It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. So as we reflect now in 2020 in Vista, we can sit back and thank God that he sent Jesus to be a lasting perfect substitute for us as hebrew says right there on screen you'll see it it says he's done it now once and for all not again and again not daily as these would often have to be performed as the priest would have done on behalf of the people we have a male without defect a perfect sacrifice who came and died on our behalf as a substitute in jesus Now, you may be asking, if, if Jesus was always going to come, then what was the point of the sacrifices? In the Old Testament, like, seriously, what on earth is the point of these? Well, this is, again, Hebrews helps us understand. It says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would, have, uh, they, they, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and were no longer felt guilty for their sin. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices alone could not take away sins themselves. It's not like before Jesus they did and after him they didn't. These were always shadows pointing towards the perfect sacrifice that was to come. And God wonderfully and kindly accepted these. It's a bit like a, a 10 pound note. You know, those things we used to use before everything went contactless a few months ago. Um, a 10 pound note is not actually worth 10 pounds. It's a piece of paper. Sorry to burst the bubble on that. Uh, it, it's a promise that the bank will pay 10 pounds. No idea how that actually works in reality, but it's true. It's not really worth 10 pounds. Uh, the sacrifices were a promise of what God would one day provide a perfect sacrifice. As the people did it, they, they did it knowing that God was to send the perfect sacrifice to come. So as we look at this fundamental sacrifice, the question is, for us now, just like in the Old Testament, will we lean on this perfect sacrifice? 
but we identify with it as our substitute. How can we live amongst a holy God? Well, we need to come to Christ. We can't come without him. We cannot approach the holy God without his sacrifice. After our gathering this evening, you'll have hopefully heard in the email, if you're staying on Zoom, I'd encourage you to all stay on Zoom as well. If you are on Zoom, we're going to share communion together, the Lord's Supper together. And as we do this, as we take bread, in a sense, we are laying hold of Christ and leaning on him. We're remembering that he is our substitute, that he is our perfect sacrifice. And we're praising him for that and remembering for that. So that is our first offering, which bridges the distance. Secondly, then, uh, and briefly, we see the grain offering is an act of devotion, bridges the distance, and then now we have an act of devotion. This followed straight after the burnt offering. It came in, and notice in 2 verse 1, it says, when anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. As with the, the previous offering, the call was to give the best that you could afford to God. This offering was given in response to God's grace of accepting that substitute. It's a bit like giving a tribute to a king. It was saying, you are my king and all I have is yours. It was an offering of worship and joy. We see it talk about oil and incense. That's showing the worship and the joy, which is part of the sacrifice. As you received atonement, the response was thankful worship and dedication, devotion, rededication to God. As I said, I thought it was like a tribute. It reminded them, we see later, uh, we can't talk about it too much now, but there's a mention of salt going in there. And that's a reminder of their covenant, the covenant God had made between his people. It reminded them that God had said, I will be your God and you will be my people. The flow was that as God's people followed God's commands, they would reflect his character more and more. And so others would stop and worship God as well. Similar flow to what we saw in Philippians. We saw a humble people living in joyful dependence on God will shine like stars. That's what the salt was was indicating and reminding them of, of of the covenant. And this sacrifice, this grain offering, again, is something which we can continue to offer now in response to God's grace in equivalence. So Hebrews 13 says this. It says, though Jesus, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. In response to all that God has done, we're called to be a people of praise. That's why we sing together. It's why we declare prayers of praise to God together in response to what he's done. This includes, uh, as we look at the grain offering, it includes our money. Philippians 4, we didn't look at these verses last week, but we see Paul talking about those who have supported him And he says, I've received full payment and I'm more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. It's one of the reasons in our membership document as a church we've listed as one of the expectations we have of God's people in this church is to give to its work, to further the work of God in Vista, to proclaim him in Vista. Because we believe strongly that how we spend our our money and give our money is an act of worship. Paul describes here giving as a fragrant offering in response to what God has done. Maybe that's something to consider if you don't already give to the church today, or maybe as you reflect on the costly nature of these offerings, the finest flower offered, maybe there's a challenge of how much you do give to God's work in response to what he's done.
But not only with our words of praise and money do we offer this sacrifice, but Paul explains wonderfully, we now offer this sacrifice with all of our bodies. Romans 12 says this, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the atonement, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Everything we do now is called and can be done in worship to God as a gift offering in response to what God has done. This offering, the grain offering, is called an offering of, of dedication, of consecration. Our lives are now his, and we're called to give all of them, every aspect of them to him. To say again and again, our work, our relationships, our children, our money, all of our lives are yours. That's the grain offering. And finally, and most briefly, we see the fellowship offering. And the fellowship offering is wonderful. They're all wonderful. This is wonderful. It leads to delight. It's similar to the burnt offering, if you look at the details, but with some key differences. Again, there's a, there's a bull or there's an animal which is burnt. But what's burnt in this one is the internal organs and the fat are burnt off to God. The, those are considered the best bits, the internal organs, the, so the insides of the person. Um, so they had those given off to God. The priest then got, eat, got to eat some of that sacrifice. And then chapter seven explains that all of this offering, the full animal had to be eaten that day. So think of your 4,000 pound bull, uh, an average bull, again, farmingforum.co.uk for all your farming needs. An average bull weighs 1,100 kilograms. That's a lot of meat. I, maybe between all of us, we could just about eat it in a day. Not sure. Every meal. So this offering was one you had to share together. And with meat being so rarely eaten in those days, it was an awesome treat and a real time of celebration. This was a celebration together, having made atonement that you were in right relationship with God, that you were at peace with God. It's often called the peace offering, the fellowship offering. So friends, as you listen in today, if this is you, if you have lent on Christ, if you've trusted in him, feel this peace. You are now in a right relationship with God and the result is peace, fellowship. And so symbolically, as they shared this, this bull, this animal together, they ate with God and ate with his people in God's house. What a picture that is, sharing a meal with the holy God. Now, not only could they dwell with the holy God, but they could share a meal with him. It's a picture of, of deep friendship in Middle Eastern culture, sharing a meal together. It's a picture of how God meant for it to be right from the beginning, from Eden to now. God's people forgiven, acknowledging him as Lord, enjoying his friendship together. What a picture. And it's a picture we're going to celebrate together in communion again in a minute. As we worship together, as we eat together. It's a picture of what is to come together where we'll sit down in a new creation at the Lord's table and eat together and drink together in God's house with his people. It's a glorious picture. So... Friends, how can man live with the holy God? The first step we see is through sacrifice. So can I ask, have you lent on Christ and trusted in him as your sufficient sacrifice? Only in him can you approach and be amongst the holy God. Only through him can that distance be removed and praise God that he's made a once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. And the response is seen in the two further sacrifices, thanksgiving, total devotion, and then the delight in the friendship that this results in. Have we given over all of our lives, every aspect in devotion to our king? And delight, friends, 
Will we delight in Christ and his perfect sacrifice today? Let's delight now and sing praises to him together.